Well, we have a Christmas pageant in our church, usually on uh, Christmas Eve. We usually do that with small children. Pastor Mark, when are you going to do that again this year? Where did he go? Did he disappear? You need to hear this message, Pastor Mark. I'm hoping you'll get saved, so we're waiting during the invitation. But, uh, but we, we are going to do that this year, right? That, that's a commitment. Okay. And uh, so as that tradition was in this church... Uh, every year, the lights went out at the opportune time, and a spotlight was put right on Jesus in the manger while all the lights were out. And there was one of the little fellows that gave a cue, our gals, and at that cue, then everybody lit their candle, and they dispelled the darkness by the lighting of the candle. And so that was a tradition that had been going on for a long time. And, and so finally, it was little Joey's time to be the one who was going to be responsible for that one line that was sort of began the whole slew of, of candles to be lit. And several practices went on, and little Joey did just a phenomenal job. He had his cue down. He had his line down. He knew exactly when and what to do, and he was feeling pretty good about it. Until finally the night when they finally came for the, for the scene. And so as the children get up there on the stage and begin to perform, he gets what many call stage fright. And as a result of that, he was beginning to panic a little bit about his time to speak. And sure enough, when the lights went out, at the opportune time, he froze. Now, mom and dad, who had sat on the front row on this particular occasion because they wanted to get everything, you know, on the camera, uh, were recording all of this and... Uh, the seconds sort of seemed like hours, and everybody was waiting for the cue. And then finally, mom, in exasperation, decided that she would give him some help. And so she began to sort of lean over and sort of whisper to him his line. But because of the beginning to, you know, the, some of the laughter and some of the noise that was beginning to develop, he couldn't hear his mom. And so she tried again and again and again. And each time she got louder and louder until finally she just in exasperation said, I am the light of the world. And he finally heard his line. And he then very proudly said, my mother is the light of the world. <laughs> yes. You know, sometimes children have a way of looking at their moms as the light of the world. Uh, I'll never forget, you know, when our kids were small, they seemed to gravitate toward mom. And uh, at some point, though, you know, they do gravitate toward dads. But, uh, you know, your mother, as good as she may have been, is not and can never be the light of the world. Jesus said that he was, in fact, the light of the world. And so that's really what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of Sundays as we sort of prepare for Christmas out of, first of all, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We're going to look at that passage this morning because I believe it's important. John is writing to believers and unbelievers alike. He is writing to Christians and those who are yet to be Christians or those that have no desire to be Christians. He's hoping that people, when they read this, will have a twofold response. Those of us who are Christians... We'll be encouraged by what we read. We'll be challenged with the truth about Jesus and all that he can accomplish and all that he can do. 
As we read it, we'll understand more fully who he is and who is this Christ that we have put our faith and trust in. So it's designed to encourage those of us who are believers. And I hope in this study this morning that you're encouraged by who Jesus is, that you see him, that you behold him, you discover him, you experience him for all that he is. There's a value, I think, in this study today for those of us who are Christians. And for those of us who are not Christians or not yet Christians, I hope that you will be enlightened into the reality of who he is and what he has done for you and that you through faith would put your trust in him and learn of the saving grace that comes through faith in Christ. This beautiful light is being described right off the bat in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. He, right out of the gate, he spends very little, if any time at all, in all of the preliminaries that the other three gospels uh, have a tendency to record. He goes straight to the heart of the matter in regard to who Jesus is for the purpose of those of us who are going to study it today. And so I want us to take a look at John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5 today, and I want us to understand as we behold the light that this light has come. And because Jesus Christ is described and defined as the light, for what purpose did he come? What do we benefit through his coming? How do we then see in his coming how we then are to engage in that coming and how that coming benefits us? There are four things I want to look at. First of all, the light has come to disclose his glory. The light has come to disclose his glory. Now, first of all, right off the bat, you're going to see the word word, and it is capitalized. And I want us to understand that as we study this passage, that not only is Jesus described by John as the light and the life, but he's also described as the word. And every time you read this word in this text this morning, it is a reference to the person of Jesus Christ. He is the living word in in the flesh, sent by God the Father, born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to die on the cross for our sins, to then give us then God's final and conclusive word about how we then are to be saved. And so anytime you read today and, and, and throughout this study, this capital word, Word, it is a reference to Jesus. So as we think about word in reference to Jesus, let's look at how John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by personal experience, he is not writing uh, from a, a context of having been told this. He's not writing from a context of, of not having experienced this. This is a personal experience of the Apostle John writing from a firsthand personal knowledge of who Jesus is. Jesus is the light that has come to disclose his glory. And right off the bat, that's what he wants to see. Notice he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There are four things that I notice here very quickly about what he's wanting to reveal to us in regard to this beautiful person called the word, the life and the light, in particular, Jesus. Notice he talks about his eternity. He says, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is eternal. Jesus was not made by God. He was not created by God. He was with God from the very beginning. He has always been with God. In other words, uh, Miguel and I were at a funeral not long ago where we heard a, a guy, he was well-intended in a funeral trying to help sort of explain Jesus by talking about the Old Testament, you know, the way of salvation, and now the New 
Testament way of salvation, and it's almost as if God somewhere made an oops and decided then to create Jesus to give us the way of salvation. Christ was not created by God the Father. He always existed with God. In the beginning was the Word, was Christ. He was from the very beginning, always in existence. He didn't just pop up. He wasn't created. He was always, from the very beginning, Jesus Christ. So he is in the beginning. He was the word. Notice, though, not only his eternity, but notice his, his symmetry. What do I mean by symmetry? Listen to the definition of symmetry. It is the quality of being made up of exactly similar parts facing one another. In other words, Jesus Christ is made of the same substance as God the Father, and they are equal in those parts, and they are facing one another in an intimate, personal relationship. And the Word was with God. They are one. They are intimate. In other words, they work in symmetry. They work alongside each other. They work in cohesion. Cohesion. God doesn't do this, and Christ does this. They never have a disagreement. They're perfect in their relationship, and they're constantly moving and working and operating as one. It's kind of similar to a, a train track, if you want to sort of use a, a very loose analogy. Don't stretch it too far. When you think about a train on a train track, there are two parallel lines. When you say, you know, that's a train track. It has two lines. So the symmetry here is God the Father and God the Son operating together as one. Notice not only his symmetry, his eternity, but also his identity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He not only was God, but he still is God. He was God before he was born on that first Christmas morning in that little manger in that little town called Bethlehem. That's not where he started. He always was in existence. He was from the very beginning of time, but he was also God in the flesh. He was divine. He was deity. He was equal with God. His identity, this baby that was born in a manger, this person that we know as Jesus, is God. That is critical for us in our faith and our understanding. To those who maybe have read this when it was written, they might have thought of Jesus as being the Messiah. Maybe Jesus was the Savior. Yes, he was those things. But he was also God because if he was not God, he could not be the Messiah. He could not be the Savior. He was God. Not only was he God, but he was in the beginning with God. It almost seems as you sort of scratch your head and sort of take a look at this that sort of, you know, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's sort of duplicating what he has said in verse 1. But I think he's sort of... For those of us who are a little dense, maybe having a hard time conceptualizing this, I don't know if you've ever been, had to been told, told the same thing more than once. Anybody other than me? You've had to be told the same thing more than once, <laughs> right? Because it just doesn't sink in the first time. My head's pretty hard. Can you hear that, Mike? You want to turn up the microphone? That's a pretty hollow head, so sometimes it needs to sink in a little bit more. But he said he was in the beginning with God. I think he's describing not only his eternity symmetry, his identity, but also his majesty. For he was co-equal with God. Jesus Christ is sovereign, just like God. He was sovereign, just like, and is sovereign, just like God. There's an interesting passage in John chapter 20, not on your screen, so you're going to have to open your Bible today. In John chapter 20, if you have your Bible, turn there with me. I want us to look at a verse beginning with verse 24. John chapter 20. 
Jesus has appeared to his disciples. He first appeared in John 20 early on in the text. He appears to Mary, and then he later sort of just, just appears in the room, in the upper room with the disciples who are locked down and they're fearful of their lives. And he, he reveals himself as the risen Lord, as Jesus. And he leaves just the same way he arrives. And they realize he's not dead, he's alive. Now notice what happens in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know where he was. Maybe out went to the grocery store. Maybe he needed to go see his mama. I don't know, but he wasn't there. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in, mark, in the mark of his nails and place my finger into the mark of his nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Interesting passage, verse 26. Eight days later, eight days later, that must have been a long eight days for Thomas. Do you think he left the upper room in those eight days? I guarantee you he did not. He was not going to miss a second appearance of Jesus. He didn't leave the room for eight days. He was there. But eight days later, we're inside again. And Thomas said with him, although the doors were locked, Thomas was with them, notice. But although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas and he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now notice the point that I want to make in this entire passage in verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, this, doesn't, this wasn't a, a sort of a, a Baptist worship service here. I believe this is somewhat more of a charismatic worship service, more maybe of a Mark Mattingly type of a worship service. My Lord and my God. He shouted it. It, it, was, it was life transformational for him. And he saw Jesus not just as his Lord, but he sees Jesus as his God. And he declares Jesus is God. That is a bold declaration. Notice Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't deny this confession. He embraces it. For Jesus understands his identity. He understands his simplicity. He understands his majesty. He understands his centered. He understands who he is. He is God in the flesh. And Thomas, for the first time, recognizes and realizes that Jesus is not only his Lord, but he is God. He is his God. If Jesus isn't God to you, you are not saved. For you must have a Savior who is God because only God in the flesh, born of a virgin with a sinless nature, can live a sinless life to die on a cross for those of us who are sinners who place our faith and trust in him. And if anybody tries to tell you that he is not God, run. For they are liars and they are not of Jesus. I know this is a concept that is hard to believe. 
But this Jesus, this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in the manger in that little town of Bethlehem was God in the flesh, pre-existent in heaven with the Father and somehow supernaturally came down into this earth by the power of the Holy Spirit and was placed in Mary's womb. And he was then there for nine months and he was born like we were born. He didn't begin then. He always was in the beginning. But now he was manifested as the living word in the flesh. Jesus Christ knew who he was. He was God. And now Thomas knows that. And so he must be God to us. And so John was wanting us to see as he's describing this beautiful person called Jesus in all of his glory, he is God in the flesh. This light is not only to be disclosed in his glory, but it's to be displayed. It is to display his grace. You see, the light has come to display his grace. For Jesus is incredibly gracious, and though our living word here is the light of life, notice that he is described now as the creator. Jesus Christ is not only God, preexistent in heaven, but now he is a part of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1, right? Jesus was a part of the beginning in Genesis 1-1. For all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is a bold statement on John's part. All things are made through him. This is right here an inclusivity remark. He is including Jesus as a part of not only creating, but being a part of creation. Jesus was a part of Genesis 1-1, where he and God together created what we know as life. All the mountains that we see, and the air that we breathe, and, and the, the clouds that bring rain, and the, the life that we know, everything from, the, from large to small, from, from molecules to mountains, to everything that we know on planet Earth, everything that we enjoy, it was all a part of Jesus Christ being actively involved in that creation. He is a part of that creation. He is the agency by which we know creation today. He is the agency. And so all things were made through him. But notice, but without him was not anything that was not made. That's exclusivity. First we see inclusivity. Now we see exclusivity, meaning that notice that, and without him, What was made? Nothing. Had Christ not made what he made, nothing would be made. He is responsible for everything. For without him, nothing would have been made at all. That's that's an exclusion here, that, that Jesus Christ is the creator of all. And I ask you, then, if Christ created all that we have and a part of that creation, why would he do it? Well, the answer to that question is because of grace. Because of grace. Unmerited favor from God. All of mankind is experiencing and enjoying the grace of God. Now, if I were to talk to you about saving grace, most of us would understand saving grace. Saving grace is described in Ephesians 2, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. We understand saving grace, that through Jesus Christ, we, we, we receive through him this beautiful thing called saving grace. And this saving grace saves us. And so we understand that, 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 we, that, that grace flows directly through Christ. 
and that through grace, by faith, we are saved. So saving grace isn't a problem for most of us who are saved. But what about common grace? Common grace is another matter. Common grace is a grace that God bestows upon all mankind. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't zap certain people out? Come on. Haven't you ever wondered that? God, why don't you just zap them out? Why do they get to enjoy life? Why do they get to breathe the same air that I breathe? Because of common grace. Common grace. Common grace is that grace that's bestowed upon all. The reality is that all of humanity is, is, is under what we want to call common grace. A beautiful example of that is found in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Take your Bible and turn there. I'm going to read that very quickly. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, where he defines and describes for us this whole concept of why God would bestow upon even unbelievers, those who are not Christians, why he would, he would care about them. Mark 10, 17 said, And as he was sitting out, setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, don't miss this. Jesus looking at him did what? He loved him. He loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus knew even before this encounter Jesus knew even before this encounter that this man would reject him. And yet he loved him. And even when he rejected him and turned his back on him and walked away from a commitment to put his faith and trust in Jesus as his Savior, he still loved him. He loved him. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. God loves the world, and the reason why God continues to, to give out this thing called common grace to all of humanity is because of what he says in 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10. And the reason why he does that is because he doesn't want anyone to perish. His grace is given for a reason. He wants to give them through that grace an opportunity to see him, to know him, and to experience saving grace. And yet, when we think about this beautiful grace, the reality is that none of us in this room deserve anything from him but condemnation. Yes, we've become and have been and still are recipients of common grace. For even though we may sometimes rebel and reject and resist and live our own lives and deny him from time to time and fall flat on our face, the only reason why we are not consumed <laughs> is because of his grace but also we have experienced a thing called saving grace and the reason why the light has come he has come to display this beautiful grace that he offers through Jesus unto salvation a light has come 
And he's come to display his grace. Thirdly, a light has come not only to disclose his glory and display his grace, but also to deliver his people. Interesting, in John 1, 4, he says, In him was life, and in the life was a light of men. In him was life, and in the light was a light of men. Two things I want to make here in comment to that. First of all, in the first phrase, in him was life, describes Jesus as the life source. Jesus was not only alive with God before the beginning of time as we know it. From all eternity, he has always existed. He's not only always been alive, but Jesus is the source of life. For without Jesus, we could not have, nor could we know life. John has just described for us in the previous verse that Jesus was the creator of life itself. From the molecule to the mountain, everything was created by God. In other words, Jesus gave you physical life. The reason why you have physical life today is because Jesus Christ, the creator, gave you life. He gave you physical life. And that alone should cause us to give gratitude and praise to him. You wouldn't be alive today without Jesus. Especially if you're not a Christian, that's called common grace. But the word here for life doesn't mean physical life. It is spiritual and eternal life. That's the word that he uses here. Jesus is and was life. He is spiritual and eternal life. For without Jesus, you can not only not have physical life, but you will never know spiritual nor eternal life. Jesus is the life. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came that they might have life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is our source of life. He is the great dispenser of life. He has given us life itself. But not only is he the source of life, he is the source of light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is not only our source for life, but he is our source for light. You cannot separate light from life, and you cannot have life without light. They're inseparable. Jesus is the light to come and reveal to us the way through the darkness to overcome our sin so that by placing our faith and trust in him, we might receive eternal and spiritual life. John eleven thirty eight. 38. Turn there real quickly. I want to talk about an important passage that helps us sort of demonstrate this because John 14, 1 says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so how do we talk about this light and life thing? In John 11, chapter 38, we know the story, some of you do, about what's happened here. Jesus is with his disciples. Lazarus is one of his best friends. He dies. The word is sent to him that Lazarus is close to death, but on the way he does die. Jesus gets there. Somebody, especially Lazarus' sisters, thinks that it's too late, and he goes. And this, notice what happens. We pick up the text in verse 38. They've already pretty much had the funeral, and Lazarus had been put in the grave, and the stone has been rolled over the grave, and they've pretty much given up any reality of him ever having life again. And there he is in the darkness of a sealed-up tomb, wrapped in burial clothes, dead. Notice what happens. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. 
Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said unto them, unbind him and let him go. This guy was dead in utter darkness. And Jesus shows up. The living word speaks a word that instills life into Lazarus. He then comes out of the grave into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. You and I are told in Ephesians 2 that we were once dead in our trespasses and sin. Romans 3.23 said all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wage of sin is death, and because of that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. But Ephesians 2.5 says that he made us alive by grace, by grace, we have seen the light. Jesus, one day in your life, if you're a Christian, reflected this beautiful light into your life, help you realize and see, even in the deadness of your sin, in the darkness of your depravity, that Jesus Christ was the answer. He lit up the way. You placed your faith and trust in him, and he gave you, through your faith, by grace, life. Spiritual and eternal life. So we have a, really a threefold uh, a debt of gratitude. He gave us physical life. He's given us spiritual life. And he alone gives us eternal life. For the light came to give us life. And number four, not only does the light deliver us as his people, but it dispels the darkness. It dispels the darkness. Notice what happens in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Two aspects about this I think are important in dispelling the darkness. Number one, Jesus is a shining light. It helps us realize that Jesus is a shining light in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the depravity, in the midst of the hopelessness that we see in our world, in our fallen world. Darkness surrounds us, yet Jesus shines his light in that darkness. You ever been in a very, very dark room and maybe just lit one small candle? How much light does that single candle dispel the darkness? And Jesus came to do exactly that, to dispel the darkness. And where his light shines, that darkness is dispelled. That darkness dissipates. That darkness moves. He is the shining light. But notice he is the saving light because it says, and the darkness has not overcome it. That word overcome is an interesting word. It means that you cannot defeat it. You cannot seize it. You cannot overtake it. Once the light is present in the darkness, there is nothing that Satan nor his demons can do to put it out. Remember that little song we used to sing as kids? Come on, put your finger up. Everybody put your finger up. Come on. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. 
this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Come on, Andy. Let it shine. Let it shine. <laughs> Rebel. Won't let Satan what? Fit out. I'm right. Remember that? Won't let Satan. Let me tell you something. This song may be theologically inaccurate. <laughs> Slightly. Brother Park hasn't led us in that lately. Good thing. Satan can't blow it out. He can't overcome it. He can't defeat it. He can't prevent it from impacting the darkness and dispelling that darkness. He does not have the capability, the power to be able to do that. And the darkness has not overcome the light. Satan cannot stop the light from shining. And so he came to dispel that darkness. John chapter 9, I want to end with this text. John chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. We're not going to read all of this passage, just some of it. In John chapter 9, there's a man that was born in darkness, like you and I were born in darkness. We were born depraved. We were born in darkness. We didn't have any capability or any ability in and of ourselves to see. We may have somehow walked around with this delusional aspect about life thinking we were actually seeing and living, but in the reality we were not living and we were not seeing. We were living in darkness. And sometimes it's hard for us as we talk to people about the fact that they're living in darkness, say, what do you mean? I'm not living in darkness. I see. Well, they don't really see. This man knew that he could see anything because he was born blind. Notice verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that, notice that, that the works of God might be displayed in him. God was about to get glory through this man's blindness. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, notice his words, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. The man now could see he was in darkness. He was blind. He no, had no way of seeing what was really out there. And now he sees, he makes his way to the temple to worship God and to give him praise for now his sight. And they find out who he was and they, they, they interrogate him. And there's this whole kangaroo court that takes place that we don't have time to talk about. But he makes this beautiful statement. He said, I don't know who the guy was that gave me my sight. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. That's all he says. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. And they kick him out of the temple. They bring his parents in, and his parents don't want anything to do with it either, but they kick him out of the temple. Notice what happens in verse 35. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Notice, you have seen him. Why? He has now been given the opportunity to see. He's no longer in depravity and darkness. And he has been given opportunity to see him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. There was a day in your life when you too were blind. You were in darkness and in depravity. Yes, you enjoyed physical life and you were under this common umbrella of God's grace. 
But you didn't know anything about life. You just thought you were living, but you, you weren't. Until all of a sudden, Jesus penetrated that darkness. And by this great light, you were able now finally to see you were living in darkness, in depravity, that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And you put your faith and trust in him, and through that light, you received life. And he gave you physical life, but now you have spiritual life. And now you have eternal life, because Jesus is the light of the world. So what do we do with that? Three things I want us to consider. What's my next step? I need to recognize the light. Do you see the light? Do you see Jesus as the light who came to give you life? Then you must receive that light so that you might then receive life. And then once you receive that life, you must reflect the light of Jesus. For there is a walk, there is a talk, there is a transformation that takes place where your whole life completely transforms and changes. And now because you have the light and you have the life, the living word of Jesus who died on the cross to save you gives you not only physical life, spiritual life, and eternal life. Be encouraged by that today if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian today, the only way to have light in life is through Jesus Christ. And your next step is to place your faith and trust in him. So what is the next step you need to take today? Would you pray with me?